This is Innovating a Bright Future. Hello, welcome to the show. I'm your host, Avery Kreibold, with Innovating a Bright Future, where I walk you through the innovative and revolutionary technology driving climate action and laying the foundation for a sustainable future. Today, I'm going to be talking to Jesse Lane, project coordinator for one of the biggest solar plants in California, battery technologist, and on-the-ground implementation expert. We're going to be talking about how solar plants get built, how they operate, and explore the implementation of solar and energy storage on a community level. I hope you enjoy. You go back to when I was in school, uh, you know, obviously being interested in uh, in all engineering at the when I first started engineering, but more automotive engineering and then uh, more actually into environmental impacts and renewables as it relates to it, because I kind of got involved more in uh, things that impact society and, and things like engineers of borders while I was in university. And from there, it kind of started to steer me towards things that have more impact to society. And energy is definitely something that affects everybody. So I, I kind of started steering the ship towards uh, renewable energy in general, not necessarily engineering and renewable energy, but I was studying engineering. So, um, you know, I wanted to get involved in the field. It was an emerging uh, field when I started getting involved in it, uh, you know, around 20, 2008, 2009. So, uh, you know, I thought, it was a good good place to go. And, uh, you know, honestly, in the last decade, it has been, I'd say, there's been a lot of evolution. Absolutely. Um, do you want to go into just a little bit of what did you work on at Engineers Without Borders? Like, what was your, what was your role or what did, you, what did you do in that organization? Sure. You know, I think like anybody, when, you, when you're in university, at least, when you get involved in something like that, or even if you're in any school program and you get involved in a voluntary, you know, uh, organization, you kind of start just being a participant, uh, trying to understand what is this, what what am I, what am I contributing towards, what's the greater good, um, and you know, I, I knew some people in Engineers Without Borders, some uh, fellow uh, classmates, and you know, getting getting to know what they were doing in in Engineers Without Borders and understanding uh, what what the goal of it was, which was essentially international development work. And you could almost argue that Engineers Without Borders is more of a international development agency, more than an engineering uh, focused uh, group. And so that's actually what intrigued me about it is it wasn't just engineering. It was more about what are the societal impacts uh, of, you know, developing countries that need help and, and need technical solutions to get things like more clean uh, access to clean water, et cetera. And so honestly, that was really that part of it that I really liked. It was just kind of more eye-opening. Hey, this is not just about engineering. It's not just about technical solutions. It's more about, hey, what impacts can we have as people, um, as you know, technically minded people that could really benefit others? Uh, and it, it doesn't necessarily mean you know detailed engineering. It just means what solutions could exist for people uh, in, that need them out there. And so my role in that was really, I was mostly a participant, but at some point I started helping to organize uh, events at the school to engage more students, uh, presentations to classrooms, uh, fundraising events, 
And, uh, and then also just more uh, broadly, we would get together with other schools, other universities and meet with other, we called them university chapters. It was just a chapter of Engineers Without Borders <clears throat> because it was primarily a, a student-based organization. So uh, we'd all get together and talk about, you know, what route we've done and what we're trying to do. And ultimately it was always, you know, focused on development. I know that one of your biggest projects that you've probably worked on was based in California in the Mojave Desert, and it was a big uh, ground-based solar farm on more of a utility scale. Do you want to go into a bit of what that looked like and what was the technology behind it? What did it look like uh, when you were installing it? Sure. Yeah. I mean, that was definitely the biggest project I've handled from start to finish. Um, you know, a lot of the projects in California are those larger utility scale projects, uh, like like the one you're talking about. It was 60 megawatts. And I mean, there's really uh, the one, you know, the one in the Mojave Desert, really a key to that project was, you know, it was a 60 megawatt AC power, which is your inverter power, which is what actually you can put out at any one time. That's the maximum output. But behind that are the actual solar panels. Um, and there was a lot more than 60 megawatts in solar panels. We had 78 megawatts in solar panels. So it was, it was oversized for that. And that's just to account for uh, times in the day where your solar, the actual solar panels, even though you can have up to 78 megawatts of, of power from your solar panels, it might be you know 6 or 7 p.m. at night and the sun's not quite hitting those panels anymore. You're only getting 50 megawatts. Uh, so, you know, you're always going to be limited to the 60 megawatts, like I said, that that output from the inverter, but you'd always be able to get a little bit extra power in those shoulder periods of the day. So, Ah, yes, the California solar plants. California has far and away the most solar power in the U.S. They have almost four times the amount that Texas has in second place. There are a few different types of solar plants, but the kind we're talking about here is called photovoltaic. Photovoltaic solar cells are probably the kind that you think about the most. This type of plant consists of these PV panels, photovoltaic. They're usually mounted on a swivel arm and implanted straight into the ground. That way they can swivel and adjust based on the time of day and the time of year. When the sun hits these panels, it's actually the tiny particles of sunlight that displace electrons in the materials of the panel, not heat which is why solar panels can generate electricity even when it's not hot outside. Electrons are our source of energy. When they're displaced, they flow through the electronic system of the panels and you have electricity. This electricity can then go directly into a battery or other storage system, which we will dive into deeper in another episode, or it can go straight into the grid. When energy is generated, it's in a direct current form and must travel through an inverter before it can go straight to the grid. I'll dive into this a little deeper a little later in the episode. If I've got this right, that farm that you built out there actually supplies like 25,000 homes with electricity in the areas. Yeah. I mean, that's probably one of those metrics that you could you could say is somewhat subjective, but I would say that's probably in the ballpark. I mean, when you look at how much power the average household uses, uh, you know, that's, it'd probably be at least that it could be even more depending on your energy efficiency and arguably that's going to be going up over time too, with more led based, uh, lighting and things like that. So. Did you see any of the, the impact on the area when, 
when you were there? Did you see any price drops or or price increases in the power of the communities in the area or anything like that? Was there any notable impact on the surrounding area that you were able to see? Yeah, so, so I think the important thing there, Avery, like I mentioned, is the, the way the power gets sold. It's it's a it's a fixed price power purchase agreement. And so we had that agreement with the, with the city of Los Angeles, basically, or the LADWP, which is the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power. And so that fixed contract effectively gives us a, a rate for the power that we deliver to them. And that doesn't change. And so that that doesn't, you know, as it is, that doesn't actually impact the, the, the rate of electricity in that neighborhood uh, around that facility. It actually doesn't impact it at all. Um, it's, it's only gonna change things for the people that are buying power from the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power. Uh, which ultimately will somehow flow into their bills. But I would say, I mean, the way this thing did affect the community, and it's not just this project. If you were to go out to the Mojave Desert, you can't go more than five minutes without seeing a wind farm or a solar project. It is just littered with them. But that neighborhood, that area is uh, is really turned into a focus in developing that land for power or other more emerging technologies. Like I believe even Elon Musk's uh, SpaceX has like a, uh, you know, a launch pad out there and stuff. So there's all sorts of stuff happening out there. And it's the, the community that lives there is there really to support a lot of those developments, I would say. That's really great to see that California is is taking that step forward even before, I would say, the majority of the rest of the United States. And they're kind of being a leader in this emerging industry and bringing in all of this renewable energy into the area that's that's beginning to displace some of this fossil fuel usage. Another project that you worked on I want to kind of go into is some smaller ground mount storage in Ontario. So this was based on just solar panels being implemented straight into the ground and generating power with a feed-in tariff, if I'm getting that right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, if you're asking about those projects, I mean, the feed-in tariff, like I just explained, uh, or what I was trying to explain with the project out in the Mojave Desert, we had a fixed power purchase agreement where they would buy that power uh, for a fixed price per energy unit. Um, The feed-in tariff is the same thing, but it's managed by the Ontario uh, well, what used to be the Ontario Power Authority, it's now the independent electricity system operator. Um, and they actually give you a fixed contract for that power, that renewable power. And they say, hey, we will pay you however many cents per kilowatt hour. A kilowatt hour is like a unit unit of energy, basically. So it's a fixed price. Um, and that is that is the whole basis for these projects. Because you can get that fixed price for that power, it makes sense for us to go and install those solar panels. So this was a series of 15 projects. Um, like you said, they're ground mounted projects. And so they're small. 500 kilowatts is not a huge amount of land. It's like two to three acres usually is how much space you need. And, you know, maybe it's hard to visualize that, but, um, you know, that this was basically people's land that we went and built this on. They would have a house on it and then their backyard they would have a large backyard and we were putting solar projects on them. And we did that 15 times, 15 different landowners with 15 different backyards. And um, we basically go out there and uh, in the neck of the woods that it was, you had to put basically big poles in the ground. We call them piles. We'd drive those into the ground, set up a racking system, 
mount the panels on those and then wire them all up, hook them up onto the, the grid. And then you're, you're, you're exporting power. You're, you're, you know, you're delivering power to the grid at that point. We did that 15 times. That was, that was basically those projects. And then they paid us a fixed price per, um, per energy unit for that basically. Right. So when you set that up and you set up those panels, it's taking the energy that's coming directly from the sun, it's converting it into electricity, and then it's feeding it directly into the grid for other people's uses. Is that is that basically how it works? And then you're actually getting paid for that. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's it's quite quite literally all that, that that it is, Avery. It's very, very straightforward with how the sun hits the panels. There's a conversion process into electrons. And those electrons flow in DC power, like a like you know, any of your cellular devices or whatever, it's DC power. It goes through an inverter, which inverts that power to AC power, which is what the grid uses. And then it goes straight into the grid. And it happens like that. It When the sun's shining, it's pushing power. And when the sun's not shining, it's not pushing any power. So that is quite simply how it is. It's a very simple process from that point of view. Quick side note on ACDC, the power, not the brand. As Jesse said here, solar panels generate DC power, direct current. It's called this because electrons flow from the panels out of one electrical terminal and into the other, a single direction. However, we need AC power, or alternating current, in order to power our home appliances like fridges, TVs, phone chargers, literally anything else. Alternating current constantly alternates in direction, negative to positive, positive to negative, negative to positive, really, really fast. An inverter is therefore essential in order to be able to use the power directly from renewables, or stored as DC in batteries. An inverter is a mechanism that controls the electron flow by flipping switches, opening gates, and closing them extremely fast in order to convert that current into alternating current. If you want to learn a bit more about inverters, I'll link a short YouTube video in the show notes. So pretty easy to put up, pretty easy to implement, and easy to get running pretty quickly is basically what it comes down to. From from a practical installation standpoint, I would say yes. From a uh, a grid connection standpoint, working with a utility and getting it connected, there are definitely some nuances, and that's going to matter depending on in what neighborhood you're in and what uh, what utilities you work with, because they have uh, different processes. But um, but installing the panels and and going through the actual construction piece of it is not not rocket science, definitely. So when that power is being used, it's actually being so it's being fed into the grid, and then the grid is buying it and selling it back to the the users, right? Correct. Except I would say the grid is not buying it. It depends who your power purchaser is. And so, like I said, in our case, it's the, you know, the independent electricity system operator that holds that contract. They're buying the power for that fixed price, but then they're effectively selling it to everybody else um, that's using or consuming power. Yeah. So it's really, really not that difficult to get this up and running is what you're saying. It's pretty, it's pretty easy. All, all things considered. It can be done. It can be done. It can be done. And it's going to continue to be done more, uh, more and more. No question. The other thing that you've worked on that I found interesting was the behind the meter energy storage. 
And I'd like you to enlighten me on what exactly that is and how it works and um, how it was being, how you participated in the implementation of those technologies. Yeah, sure. Uh, so battery energy storage is sort of like the sequel to solar uh, energy or even uh, wind energy in that it's sort of the, you know, the sidekick um, to these renewable technologies. Um, and right now, today, I mean, there's different ways you can deploy battery energy storage, but ultimately the technology does really one thing well. It does a lot of things, but it does one thing well today, and that's um, store energy when you don't need it and use it when you do. And so that's really the key to the technology right now. Battery storage, probably one of the most buzzwordy topics around right now. So how does it work? Well, utility-scale power storage, like that from Tesla, is typically lithium-ion based. There are some alternatives, like solid-state batteries from QuantumScape and liquid metal batteries from Ambry, which you can look forward to in a future episode, but this is what's on the market right now, and this is what Jesse worked on. These lithium-ion batteries work by the movement of lithium ions and their paired electrons. With oppositely charged metal sheets at either end and a separator in the middle, batteries charge by assembling pairs of lithium with an electron on the negative sheet. When these batteries are used, the electrons are pulled out of their partnership through external electronics to run your electronic system, like a blender or whatever you're doing, and the lithium moves through that separator in the middle, which doesn't allow the electrons through. They then pair up on the positively charged sheet, and your battery is fully discharged. With his projects, the battery systems took in energy from the grid, or from their own source, like solar and wind, and stored it in a ton of these batteries. Then when the electricity was at a high demand, and a high price, they used their battery energy in order to prevent their use of this high-priced energy. This saved them a lot of money. This is just one way to use batteries, and as Jesse says just moments later, batteries will likely become complementary to renewable energy sources, storing power from solar and wind during the day to be used further on at night. These systems will become the core of our global energy systems, but for now, they're being used on a relatively small scale, called microgrids. Microgrids utilize renewables plus batteries in order to provide energy to a small community, Buildings, campuses, or even cities have used microgrids in order to supply 100% of their energy through the means of renewables plus storage. This is something that I'll cover further on in the show, so stay tuned for more information on microgrids. And, um, you know, that's being implemented in different ways today. I mean, I think the first early movers in battery energy storage are using it to save money on their power. So, um, like the projects we've worked on in, in Ontario, um, a lot of bigger electricity consumers, uh, big companies uh, that use a ton of power and they're using power all the time, they pay a lot of money for electricity and they pay on a, on a different type of rate structure, a different electricity rate structure than you know, a typical household does. They, they pay based on uh, a demand charge which is basically how much power do they use every month, like up to how much power. And then um, there's another factor, at least in Ontario, which is called global adjustment. And they look at the five greatest power peaks in the year. And if you are contributing to a lot of power during one of those five high peaks in the year, that one hour of the year, you pay 
a significant amount of money, uh, you know, like could be hundreds of thousands of dollars for a lot of these companies. So we use the battery. We use the battery basically to store power. And when we expect one of those peaks to happen, which typically happens in summer months when it's really hot outside, we we will use the battery to reduce uh, uh, like a big cons- like big company's power load. We'll reduce it right down to as low as possible, so that when that peak happens, they're not getting charged for that peak, and it's, it could significantly reduce their bill. Uh, and so, because of that economic incentive, because of that like potential payback for the battery usage. We've been seeing more systems installed that way today than anything else. Um, but I think what we're going to start seeing, and we've been seeing this a lot in the United States, is you're going to start seeing batteries paired with solar projects or wind projects for the exact same reason. They're going to be pushing a lot of power, maybe at night or uh, early in the morning or sometime when the grid doesn't really need that power. And instead of just sending it into the grid like we were talking about, where you know when the sun's shining, it's just going it's going to go into the battery and stored and, to, and then use it when you need it later. And that's going to make a big difference um, in how we use electricity and, and in our peak demand usage of electricity, if that can make some sense there. Solar and storage seems to be one of those technologies that's that it's coming and it's coming fast, but it's not quite here yet. And when it gets here, it's going to be a really big deal to absolutely everybody who uses and produces energy. So I'm sure you have to get going pretty quick here. I just want to end with a couple quick questions for you to answer. So would you say energy production or energy storage? Well, if I had to choose one. <laughs> yeah, you have to choose one. Um, I would say energy production. Would you say research into some of these fields or the actual implementation? I would say implementation. Centralized solar or distributed solar? Distributed solar. Nature or the city life? Uh, Nature. And with this last one, you can take a bit more time. With everything that you've seen in the industry... Do you think that we can move away from all these heavily centralized fossil fuel power plants and electricity systems across the globe by 2050, as a lot of the UN statements and those climate change documents have stated we need to do? Do you think that's possible? I I do think it's possible. Um, I think we're going to be, I think it's funny because you, you look at, how humanity has sort of progressed and generationally, at least at least if you look at Canada or even the United States or any of the Western world, I feel like generally, generationally, we're all becoming more concerned about climate. I think we all understand uh, it's a real th- real issue. It's it's you know climate change is a real thing. I think it's really hard to dispute that, um, to be honest. And I think that the more and more appreciation and understanding there is for that the more people will be willing to pay for that. And, the, you know, it's at the end of the day, that's what we're going to have to do. It's not going to be something that just naturally takes over. I think people have to work towards it and there will be some, you know, some cost to doing that. And I don't think that that's a bad thing. I think that's the natural course that we need to take. And uh, at the end of the day, you know, everything, nothing's free. And I think that, the technology exists today. It's going to continue to get better. 
Uh, I think we're going to see a lot of new emerging technologies. I mean, if you just look at the last 10 to 20 years, uh, I think a lot of people would have, have a hard time predicting that our energy technologies today are what they would like what they are today, what you would have expected 20 years ago. So, I mean, I would argue the same thing over the next 10 to 20, maybe 30 years. We're going to see a lot of technologies we probably weren't expecting or as soon as we were expecting them. So I I think by 2050, it's possible. We just have to be motivated. And I think people have to appreciate that it's an, an important issue. And I think that's happening, to be honest. I agree. I think it is coming. It is coming to be a more widely known issue and it's becoming to become the forefront of a lot of discussions in politics, economics, and technology circles. And we're going to need, we're going to need all of those sectors to intersect in order to conquer this, this huge problem that we're ultimately facing. Yeah. And, and I'll add to like, it, it, it trickles into things beyond just energy, right? Like you're going to start seeing it more in the way you eat your food and more like you see that today, right? There's a huge movement with veganism. There's a huge movement towards, uh, you know, not, uh, not driving as much or all these other things. It's not just energy, right? Like there's so many other ways you can contribute to that. And I think that's going to be part of it is that it's, when I say there's going to be a cost, I don't think it just is a monetary cost. It's going to be a lifestyle, uh, change. And I think everyone has to buy into that. And I think people are doing that. You see that a lot more now. So that's just my other point to that. It goes beyond energy for sure. Yeah, we're going to see it in in all of those sectors. Well, Jesse, thank you so much for coming on and sharing sharing all your experiences and everything that you've learned throughout your career in this field. I really appreciate all the insight you've given us into that into that field in the solar industry as well as the storage industry. So I think that'll help you more deeply understand all of this that's that's happening and will continue to happen at even faster rates around us. Yeah. Oh, well, thanks, Avery. Appreciate the time today. I'm happy I uh, had an opportunity to shed some light on those things. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. Have a good rest of your night, eh? Yeah, thanks. You too. Well, that was quite a conversation with Jesse Lane, Solar Project Coordinator and Manager and Battery Technologist. It's great to hear about these projects being built because we don't see enough of these success stories. This one man has helped to create around 40,000 homes worth of renewable energy infrastructure. That's absolutely incredible. I highly encourage you to check out the links in the show notes if you want to learn a bit more about how photovoltaic cells work or how these systems operate. I hope you learned something, I hope you're inspired, and I hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you so much for listening. If you did enjoy this episode, I want you to tell one person about it. Let them know your favorite fact, quote, or moment. It really helps get the show out there, and I really appreciate it. Stay innovative. I'll see you next week.